This week, we talk about a country that has seen a lot more violence than the average country. The country in question is the Democratic Republic of Congo, otherwise known as the DRC. Welcome to Society of Strife. Before we get started, I have to give a little advisory. This advisory isn't about violence, corruption, or many of the things that we'll be looking at in this week's episode. Instead, it's about the country's names. The DRC has had a lot of names over the years. While under the direct control of King Leopold, it was known as the Congo Free State. Under the control of the Belgians, it became known as the Belgian Congo, and at independence, it was renamed the Democratic Republic of Congo. But in 1971, Mobutu Sese one of these episodes degenerate stars, renamed the country Zaire, but his successor renamed it the Democratic Republic of the Congo. A little note, however, the DRC is not to be confused with its neighbor to the northwest, known as the Republic of Congo. I know all this is a tad confusing, but I ask you to bear with me because it is important. Don't worry, during narration, I'll try to be as clear as possible. Additionally, this episode contains a shit ton of racism that some people, such as myself, may find very offensive and quite triggering. As I was researching this episode, I found myself reacting like most Americans do when they see Ted Cruz on TV. So, let's get on with the show. The DRC is known as the epicenter of African strife. To be honest, this is by no means the fault of the Congolese. In fact, all the strife leads back to the actions of one man who single-handedly turned the country into his own personal fiefdom from the late 1870s to the year 1908 when the DRC was known as the Congo Free State. This man was known as King Leopold II, a man who I regard as one of the vilest people in modern history. And yes, I include Hitler on that list. We shall look at King Leopold II on Agents of Strife and we shall look at the Congo Free State later on in this show because that's the only way we can look at all the atrocities that were committed by Leopold. After the massive scandal that was King Leopold erupted, the Belgians took over colonial rule of the country. But their rule wasn't much better. In fact, the government of Belgium assumed that its colonial mandate would last forever. But unfortunately for them, they were dead wrong. As the year 1955 approached, Belgium had no idea that its colonial rule was a mere 60 months from utter collapse. But as 1960 approached, things were headed down a road that the DRC had little hope of coming back from. And this was all due to the actions of one man, Joseph Desiree Mobutu, also known by his other name, Mobutu Seseseko. I'll cover Joseph Mobutu's story on Agents of Strife, so please make sure that you've subscribed to Agents of Strife. So far, I seem to be having a few technical issues with some episodes not showing up on all platforms, but please rest assured. I'll fix the issues this coming weekend and we can get back to some great and informative entertainment, if you can call this entertainment that is. So please bear with me on these strifers. I was told that this week's episode on the clan never showed up on all platforms and I do apologize for that. Anyway, the part of Mobutu's story that is relevant to this episode is this. At age 29, 
Mobutu became chief of staff, and within eight weeks of independence, he had fired both the country's president and prime minister amidst the Cold War. As with many of the countries that we've covered so far, the Cold War played a huge part in the decades of chaos, corruption, and conflict that tore apart the country, especially after Mobutu's ascension. Mobutu would end up leaving behind a country that could only be defined by name, the borders of its nine neighboring countries, and, of course, the ability of its government when it came to pillage and plunder of natural resources. And when I say natural resources, I mean natural resources. The DRC, in terms of natural resources, such as precious metals, is one of the wealthiest countries on the planet. In fact, its natural wealth can only be rivaled by that of Venezuela. Which is ironic, considering that both of these countries are one of the poorest countries on the planet. Diamonds, the foundation on which Congo should have been constructed, became the country's curse. The curse that is continuously destroying the country to this day. From the day they were discovered in 1907, diamonds have been at the center of DRC's problems. In fact, it is possible that had Leopold II discovered the extent of diamond resources in the Congo, he never would have relinquished control over the country. Leopold, had he lived today, would have been a corporate CEO. He was vain, greedy, and ambitious. You know, the qualities you need to become a successful CEO. When I was researching King Leopold, I noticed that he was very much like a certain CEO today. This CEO allowed misinformation to spread on his platform and even promoted it, just so he could make an extra buck. I think you all know who I'm referring to. For those who don't, here is a hint. He has one of the worst haircuts on the planet. Leopold was styled King of the Belgians during his coronation in 1865. He took this as an opportunity to further his ambition because since his youth, he had envisioned Belgium not as the small country it is today, but as an empire whose might and wealth dwarfed that of the British and the French. As with most people at the time, he looked to Africa. During his formative years, Leopold had heard stories of explorers in Africa, and by explorers, I mean invaders. He had also seen the wealth that had been accrued by other European nations from the African and Asian continents. Unfortunately for him, Belgium had no interest in colonization at the time, so he decided to follow his own path. Focusing on the vast unexplored stretches of Central Africa, he set himself up as a patron of exploration, and then, seeing the lack of interest showed by other quote-unquote explorers, he set himself up as a humanitarian looking to get rid of the Arab slave trade and to quote-unquote civilize the heathens. To be honest, I don't understand the use of the word heathens in this context. Is he referring to Arabs or Africans? Frankly, I have no idea. I just know that I find it offensive. At this point, I think we should go on a little sidetrack. You know, most people wondered why, during the Black Lives Matter protests, that is, when they finally made it to Belgium, most people wanted King Leopold's statues gone. This wasn't cancellation or vandalism or whatever conservatives call it nowadays. This dude, just like every other immortalized person who had a hand in slavery and oppression, was a monster. 
By the way, if you oppose statue removal, calling it cancellation and such, ask yourself this. Hitler represented a massive technological leap both in military and civilian life in the mid-20th century. Of course, these technological advancement were made possible by, among other things, human experimentation. Knowing this, how would you feel if you saw a statue of him in all his Third Reich quote-unquote glory and splendor? If your answer is, you'd feel terrible and then shove a stick of dynamite up his stone ass and blow the statue to hell. Welcome to the show. If not, goodbye. So, the question becomes, why is it so different for European and American slave owners and oppressors? Why are they held to different standards? Is it because of societal racism and prejudice that the people who want to see those statues gone are referred to as vandalizers and criminals? These people brought great wealth and economic opportunities to their respective regions, but it was all paid for by the exploitation of other human beings. To every Asian, Native American, Pacific Islander, Black and Indigenous person who has been subject to racism and is well aware of the toll of slavery, colonialism and oppression on their respective cultures, these guys are no better than Hitler. As I always say, keep these guys in the history books without embellishments, but please stop immortalizing them. You know, discussions such as these are important, especially now because this past Wednesday was the 200th anniversary of Napoleon Bonaparte. A majority of French textbooks portray him as some sort of great hero and military genius, but they fail to mention his role in the Haitian Revolution and the reason why Haiti is so poor to this day. They also don't mention the works of art that were stolen by his forces from Europe and African colonies. Haven't you guys ever asked yourself why the Louvre contains so many works of art from different parts of the world? Yeah, most of those works of art are actually stolen. It is this kind of whitewashing that most people are against. I mean, if you're going to talk about someone, talk about both the good and the bad. We'll talk more about Napoleon in Agents of Strife and we'll look at the Napoleonic Wars in this show. Now, let's get back to the DRC, Leopold II and Blood Diamonds with a sprinkling of Mobutu Suseseko. In 1876, Leopold hosted what he called a quote-unquote Grand Geographical Conference in Brussels. He brought together some of the world's foremost explorers and humanitarians. During the Grand Conference, he told his audience that, quote, to open to civilization, the only part of our globe which it has not yet penetrated, to pierce the darkness which hangs over entire peoples, is, I dare say, a crusade worthy of this century of progress, end quote. This conference led to the creation of the International African Association, a philanthropic organization which would become famous or infamous as the case may be for very different reasons. Leopold was so persuasive that when the Berlin Conference was inaugurated in 1884 to draw up the colonial map of Africa that's in use to this day, his staking out of a vast territory in Central Africa was enthusiastically accepted by other European colonial powers. It is worth noting, however, that he had told them that Congo would be a free trade zone. It would be a few more years 
before they realized the truth. Trade, like the free state, would never be free. It was intended to benefit the so-called king of the Belgians. Leopold was now presiding over a territory 77 times larger than Belgium, and that territory contains riches beyond anything he had dreamt of, from ivory, which came from the murder of animals, specifically rhinos and elephants, tropical hardwoods, which were thousands of years old, to palm oil, Congo had everything. All that Leopold needed now was someone to do all the hard work and someone to protect the resources. He achieved this in two ways. One, he gave Belgian companies huge concessions over vast amounts of territory. Two, he created a private army, the Force Publique, which, among other things, acted as a law enforcement organization. It also acted as a labor enforcer. And by labor enforcer, I mean slave labor. One of the most important things to Leopold was rubber. At the time, the European automotive industry was quickly developing, and of course, they needed tires. Okay, a little bit of a warning here. Listeners may find the next part very upsetting. Villages were given quotas for the production of rubber from the Congolese wild. If a village failed to reach the set quotas, the first public was summoned. The first public would then destroy the offending village and then proceed to killing men, women, and children as they tried, in vain, to flee for their lives. The first public did not kill everyone though. They needed to send a message to the neighboring villages. And so, those who were not killed had their hands chopped off. It did not matter whether they were children or adults. Things were so bad that by the year 1919, Congo's population had been reduced by more than half. Adam Hochschild, author of King Leopold's Ghost, a book I found very informative, explains how so much of the population died out. In his book, he said that the first reason why so many people died was due to outright murder, which was perpetrated mostly by the force public. The second reason was due to starvation, exhaustion, exposure, and the spread of disease. During King Leopold's reign over the Congo, it is estimated that between 10 to 13 million people died as a result of his brutality and that of his government. 10 to 13 million. That's genocide. Remember last week when I said that there are worse people than Hitler out there? This guy is definitely one of them. Think about it this way. It is estimated that close to 100 million Africans died as a result of both slavery and colonization. Out of those 100 million, DRC on its own accounts for around 15% of the casualties. Most of those casualties were because of King Leopold II and the Congo Free State. When I was researching the clan, I thought that I had seen the asshole of evil. But after researching this episode, I have to upgrade the clan from asshole to armpit. This right here is the new asshole. If you think that people like Leopold II are gone from the world, you are very, very wrong. In 2010, Belgium's former foreign minister, Louis Michel, said of Leopold II, quote, he was a visionary hero. To use the word genocide in relation to the Congo is absolutely unacceptable and inappropriate. Maybe colonization was domineering and acquiring more power. But at a certain moment, 
it brought civilization, end quote. Yes, he actually said that. I guess to him, 13 million dead was just a footnote in the late great King Leopold II's book. And yes, that quote was from 2010, not 1910, 2010. The scandal that was Congo Free State took more than 10 years to emerge and caused enough uproar from other colonial powers to disengage the Belgian king from his stranglehold on the Congo. When he finally relinquished his hold over the Congo, the Belgian government took over, but even so, the price was high. Let me break down the numbers. After the Belgian government took over, it had to assume 110 million francs worth of debt. This money had been borrowed from the government but never repaid. After that, the government had to spend a further 45.5 million francs just so it could complete various projects that Leopold started. No, those projects weren't for the benefit of the Congolese. They were all vanity projects, including a massive palace that he was building for himself and his family. The Belgian government also awarded King Leopold 50 million francs, quote, as a mark of gratitude for his great sacrifices made for the Congo, end quote. They actually paid him for killing 13 million people. So, you might be wondering, where is all this money coming from? It wasn't coming from the Belgian taxpayers. It was coming from the Congo itself. After Leopold left, nothing changed. The Belgian government still continued the practices that he had set up. Forced labor was still mandatory and brutal oppression grew even more widespread. The only thing that was different was the fact that instead of harvesting wild rubber, plantations were now set up to ensure more efficient slave labor. As World War I began, new mines were set up, especially because metals were becoming increasingly more essential to the Allied effort and Congo had everything. Copper, zinc, gold, tin, and most importantly, diamonds. The mines were even more in demand during World War II. And it may shock you strifers to learn these. The uranium used in the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was mined from the Congo, using forced labor of course. In this day and age, we are all familiar with the effects of uranium poisoning and radiation poisoning on the human body. We are also familiar with the more than 200,000 innocent civilians who died at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But nobody really talks about the Congolese people who were forced to mine uranium while having no protection. And there's a reason for that. The records don't exist. I went through thousands of documents searching for records but found none. Anyway, the best way to reach a conclusion is to dig a little deeper. The full episode on uranium mining in the Congo will be available on season 2 of Society of Strife. The only way I could tell the toll of the mining on the population was to look at the town from which the mine was based. The town, which goes by the name of Shinkolobwe, is a ghost town. Think Raccoon City after the virus leaked from Umbrella Corporation. Empty, rusted buildings are the only ones that remain in the scarred landscape that is Shinkolobwe. And although the mine was sealed by a Belgian company shortly after Congolese independence, presumably so that the local population couldn't benefit from the mine as much as the Belgians and the Americans had, radiation from uranium decay still leaks out 
into the surrounding environment. In short, the mine poisoned both the people and the town, but no one really talks about it. Some Congolese people also associate it with evil, especially after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They say that the land around the mine and the town is too blood-soaked. As for the records, I think they were destroyed by the Belgian mining company Union Minier, and those that weren't were kept secret by the US government at the time when Shinkoloboe was removed from the map, quote-unquote, to protect it from the Soviets. Something I noticed that I found very interesting was the fact that the Congolese feel guilty about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki because of the knowledge that the uranium used in those bombings came from the DRC. And yet, some of the people who were actually involved in the bombings still try to justify them to this day. Something else that I also found very interesting while researching this episode was the fact that, according to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, we are now 100 seconds to midnight. For those who have no idea what I'm talking about, midnight represents the literal end of the world. I have a question for all my listeners. Do you think that it has ever been that close to midnight before 2020? DM me on Instagram at Society of Strife Podcast with your replies. If you're wondering where the 100 seconds comes from, it comes from the combined threats that we as humans now face. Everything from nuclear annihilation risks, climate change, COVID-19, and disruptive technologies. Think about it this way. China and the US are creating a new Cold War. New friendships are being forged in the forges of COVID-19. Climate change is creating new, unpredictable weather changes. Hypersonic weaponry is also being developed. And, most disturbing of all, space is being weaponized. When you take all this into account, you start realizing that the bulletin is being too generous with the 100 seconds. I'd give it a solid 30 seconds till midnight. When the Belgians were in charge of the Congo, all colonial production was accomplished using forced labor. This expanded even more during the Second World War when the average man in the Congo was forced to work at least 120 days a year without any pay or with minimal pay and zero protections. By then, the Congo's biggest moneymakers were two things, copper and diamonds. Diamonds found in alluvial and kimberlite deposits in the vast stretches of land around Kisangani, Bujimai, and Shikapa were controlled by a company that was formed during Leopold's reign of terror, a company known as Fominier. By the year 1929, the Congo had become the world's largest diamond producer after South Africa. It is worth noting though that most of DRC's diamonds are of industrial rather than gem quality. Until the 1930s, industrial gems were mainly used to cut and polish other gemstones, which meant that demand wasn't quite high. But in the 1930s, a German company created a tungsten carbide alloy that was harder than steel and could only be cut using industrial diamonds. Following that development, in its usual fashion, De Beers suddenly came up with a new product, industrial diamonds. Now, as we all know on this show, where there's blood diamonds, there's De Beers. De Beers knew 
that the only place they could get industrial diamonds by the ton and very cheaply was the Congo. And so, then head of the beers, Ernest Oppenheimer, set his sights on Fominier. In a letter to his son Harry, he wrote, quote, Fominier will dictate the post-war politics of the diamond trade. By controlling the Congo production, the beers will maintain its leading position in diamonds, end quote. Of course, it didn't matter to the beers that the diamonds were extracted using forced labor. After all, at the time, it was flourishing in a racist, segregated South Africa. The beers negotiated a deal with Brussels. In return for all the Fominier production, the beers would provide the Belgian diamond cutting and polishing industry with the bulk of its gemstones. To cement the agreement, the beers also bought shares in a Belgian company, Beseka. Beseka owned a controlling stake in Fominier. If you want to know exactly how wealthy the DRC is, or at least how wealthy it should have been, all you have to do is look at 1950s figures. Please note that all the proceeds went directly to Belgium. In 1953, the Belgian Congo produced 5% of the world's zinc, 7% of the world's copper, half the world's uranium, 80% of the world's cobalt, and 70% of the world's industrial diamonds. In the mid-1950s, Belgium Congo's exports totaled at a massive $3 billion. In 2021, that's just over $33 billion. All that money, and yet, by the time of independence, in 1960, after more than 50 years of Belgian occupation, there were only 15 to 17 Congolese graduates. Within a week of independence, the army mutinied, which directly led to the secession of Mindro-Rich, Katanga province. We now know that this secession was sponsored by the Belgian government in its unwillingness to part with its cash cow. The country's new prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, one of the people whose actions had led to Congolese independence, asked the US for help. Unsurprisingly, the US refused, and so he turned to the UN, which sent up peacekeeping force that was anything but useful. Seeing this, Patrice turned to the Soviet Union, and within weeks, more than a thousand technical advisors had arrived to aid his government. This arrival cost then army chief Joseph Mobutu, aka Mobutu Seseko, to fire both the president of the country and the prime minister, Patrice Lumumba. All these had taken place within a month of independence. After the arrival of the Soviets, someone else panicked, the US. Don't forget that Patrice had gone to them first. Anyway, the US started accusing Patrice Lumumba of being communist, which wasn't true. Patrice had turned to the Soviets because they were the only ones who were willing to help him. Anyway, the fact that Patrice Lumumba was just about to return to power alarmed the US government even more, and in its usual fashion, it collaborated with the British and the Belgians towards the execution of Patrice Lumumba. Just like that, President Eisenhower himself had sanctioned the murder of the only hope that the DRC had and paved way for a monster. After the murder of Patrice Lumumba, five years of chaos followed until, in 1965, Mobutu Seseko stepped in and took control of the entire country for good. 
this time. Mobutu inherited very little to work with. The country's infrastructure had all but collapsed. The country was divided politically and all three branches of government were virtually non-existent. In good dictator fashion, instead of building upon what he found, he set about creating his own, in his own image. First, he subverted the army and the police, promoting people based on loyalty instead of qualification. Second, he reshuffled his cabinet so much that the members of cabinet finally understood that the only way they could get to keep their jobs would be if they demonstrated total fealty towards him and him alone. To maintain his government and the loyalty of its members, Mobutu needed one thing, cash, money that organizations such as the World Bank were only too happy to provide. In 1971, looking to escape the colonial era, he renamed the country and the river that gives the country its name, Zaire. The Congo River became the Zaire River and the country became known simply as Zaire. It was while making all these changes to the country that he renamed himself Mobutu Seseseko or in full Mobutu Seseseko Kuku Ngumbendu Wazabanga which translates as Father of the Nation. At the time, Mobutu also started a new campaign, a campaign in which all foreign-owned businesses were seized and handed over to the country's citizens. But, unsurprisingly, Mobutu kept the best for himself. Unfortunately for him, the campaign, titled Zaireanization, coincided with the 1974 oil crisis, which led to the devaluation of certain products that the Congo produced, such as copper and coffee. Because of the oil crisis, Congo's economy went from one that had good possibilities to one with a significantly fewer number of opportunities. In response to that, and in defiance to logic, corruption and mismanagement ramped up. In 1967, Mobutu nationalized Union Minier, which changed its name to Jekamin. After that, it went into a long, slow decline from an annual peak production of 550,000 tons of copper, it was just producing 12,000 tons by 2008. Not only did the production drop, but all of a sudden, a lot less proceeds were making it to the national economy. Taxes, forward selling, ghost workers, inflated payrolls, and outright embezzlement ensured that the pockets of the president and his cronies remained full. After a similar fate befell the country's cobalt industries, only the diamond industry was left. The only reason that the diamond industry remained untouched by Mobutu's grubby little sausage fingers was because most of the diamond fields lay in areas outside of his control. And of course, there was the beers to contend with. But all that was about to change. Through the 1960s and 70s, De Beers had a monopoly on the Congolese diamond industry. To gain greater control for himself, Mobutu first nationalized the company that was responsible for the production of most of the diamonds. Then, in 1981, he decided that he was no longer willing to work with De Beers, thus bringing to an end the monopoly that De Beers had. Instead of selling to De Beers, Mobutu decided to market the diamonds through a consortium of three companies. One of those companies was based in London, while two 
were in Antwerp. After Mobutu's nationalization, diamond production fell dramatically from 13.4 million carats in 1973 to 8.4 million in 1979. The beers didn't take the news that they were no longer in control of Congolese diamonds well. After Mobutu brought their monopoly over Congo to an abrupt halt, the beers retaliated by dumping huge quantities of Congo quality industrial diamonds out into the world, effectively killing the market price to a point where within two years, Congo had signed a new deal with De Beers. De Beers had won that round, but Mobutu still wasn't done. In 1983, he created an open source diamond market, allowing him to hand out licenses to just about anybody. This meant that De Beers was no longer in control and small-scale diamond exporters could now flourish, and they did. In the 1970s, small-scale miners accounted for less than a quarter of the Congo's diamond production. But by 1986, small-scale miners represented a massive 64% of all the diamonds mined and exported from the Congo. It is at this point that I have to present a new member of our Degenerate Stars Assembly. If Leopold II was Stormfront and Mobutu Seseseko was Homelander, then Jonas Mukamba was definitely Black Noah. Jonas Mukamba was technically the overseer of all diamond production in the Congo, and at the height of his powers, he was skimming an estimated $1.5 million to $2 million a month on Mobutu's behalf, and, of course, keeping a generous portion for himself. Most Congolese economic statistics are untrustworthy. And if you want information that is actually usable, you have to dig a lot deeper just to understand what was going on. Diamonds are the worst because, like art, they technically do not have set prices. Sometimes diamonds will be subject to hyperinflation, like Tesla stock. And sometimes, just sometimes, a diamond might be worthless. When the beers flooded the market with diamonds that were of the same quality as those from the Congo, Congolese diamonds began trading at less than a dollar a carat. This is the main reason why Mobutu Seseseko agreed to a new deal with the beers. Food for thought. Thank you so much for listening. Before we end, I'd like to leave you with a poem from American poet Vachel Lindsay that shows just what kind of man Leopold II was and what I think of him. Quote, Listen to the yell of Leopold's ghost burning in hell for his hand-maimed host. Hear how the demons chuckle and yell, cutting his hands off down in hell. End quote. I hope you liked my narration. If you did, you can help the show by leaving a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts and sending a donation our way on patreon.com slash societyofstrife and buymeacoffee.com slash societyofstrife. If you'd prefer to send a one-time donation without any strings attached, you can do so on Buy Me A Coffee. Join me next Friday as we continue exploring the Congo and Mobutu Seseko's impact on the country. Goodbye and stay safe. That goes for whether you're vaccinated or not. See you guys next time.